Welcome to the very first Ray Harryhausen podcast, the show dedicated to the life, career and films of a special effects titan. Join us as we host in-depth discussions about the work, influences and legacy of this uniquely talented filmmaker. Brought to you by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, we will be delving into Ray's archives to bring a unique insight into his work, including exclusive audio from the man himself from our own archives. We will be joined by special guests for retrospectives, exclusive announcements and competitions. So this podcast is a must-listen for all fans of the world of Ray Harryhausen, animation and classic filmmaking. I'm really excited to, to get started with this today. Uh, my name's Connor Heaney and I'm the, the collections manager with the foundation. This is just going to be a really exciting opportunity to have a look through Ray Harryhausen's life, career and associated collection. I'm joined today by John Walsh. John, can you tell us a little bit about your background, um, how you came to know Ray's films and then how you got in touch with the man himself? Hello, yes. Well, I'm John and I'm a trustee of the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. It was Quite a few years ago, in the late 80s, I opened a London telephone directory, found Ray's name inside, and decided to give him a call. I was a student at the London Film School at the time, and I was interested in making a documentary about stop-motion animation. By this stage, Ray had been retired for about eight or nine years. So I rang him up. He answered the phone as well, which is quite unusual to find somebody who's so senior in the film business having their number listed in a telephone directory. He said yes. He was always generous with his time and uh, with fans. And the rest is history. I made a a short 16mm documentary about Ray's work. I came to his house. I filmed some of the models. And incredibly, and quite ballsy of me, I got Tom Baker to do a free voiceover for us on the film. Because as fans of Ray's films will know, Tom Baker actually won the part of Doctor Who in the early 70s after appearing in Ray's Golden Voyage of Sinbad. And the producer, Barry Letts, was looking for a replacement for John Pertwee, who was leaving, saw the Golden Voyager Sinbad on in Leicester Square and decided, ah, this could be my man. And, of course, the rest is is TV and Doctor Who history. That in itself tells you a lot about Ray's character and personality, the fact that he, he took your phone call and agreed to work with you. You can't imagine seeing... Steven Spielberg or George Lucas's name in the in the directory phone book and the fact that he was so willing to engage with the fans in such a generous fashion I think just says a lot about him in, in itself. It does I mean he was a man who was generous of spirits he always would talk openly with fans and he would show them the collection and I'm hoping that you know within the work of the foundation we can kind of perpetuate that and and have that sort of goodwill built into our our kind of schemes, our promotions, um, which I think we're going to talk about a bit later on. But yes, he was certainly a, a generous-hearted individual. Well, that, that leads on to why we want to do this podcast, because we're lucky enough to work with the collection and the archive that Ray left. And literally every day you look through that collection, there, there's treasures everywhere within it, some that are well-known and have been well-documented, some which haven't seen the light of day for years. So we really just thought this was the perfect medium to tell the world about Ray's life and everything that uh, that he did, everybody he worked with, his inspirations and so forth. I'll go through some facts and figures from the collection just to sort of demonstrate how extensive it is. We estimate that there's around 50,000 items within the collection and this includes original armature models, hard rubber stand-in models, pieces of armatures themselves, original moulds, artwork, miniatures, stills, 
negatives, um, the equipment used in the dynamation process, paperwork, test footage, books, magazines. I mean, let's face it, Rain never threw anything away throughout his entire life. And this just gives us a unique opportunity to see such an influential filmmaker's career in a holistic fashion. You're right. I mean, by any modern standards, Ray would be considered a hoarder. You know, we watch programmes on television that tell us to declutter and throw things away and, and minimalise our, um, our working environments. Ray kept everything. You know, we have receipts going back to the 1930s and 40s. It is, I think I'm right in saying, the largest animation collection outside of the Walt Disney Studios in the world. And, you know, a 50,000-strong piece collection is quite something special. But it's interesting... I sometimes say to people, I'm part of the Harryhausen Foundation, they say to me, what's that? When I name the films, they're like, oh, I remember that film, I love Bubo the Owl. Oh, did he do that with all the skeletons? So people do know the films, even if perhaps they don't know the man's name. So, you know, throw out some of your favourite titles and people will know Clash of the Titans, Jason and the Argonauts. Um, they're, they're the films that we always see and know and love. And the idea that this has been preserved and collected and now has been curated is, um, I think, very exciting. Yeah, I think so too. And that, as you say, the first thing people mention, some of the films, some of those incredible creatures that Ray created, and that is obviously a focal point for us. We're lucky enough to have armature models from almost every single one of Ray's films, all the way back to Mighty Joe Young in 1948. And although a lot of these models are shown the test of time, I think it's incredible that we, we have all of these creations. You know, everyone from Talos and the Skeletons and Jason and the Argonauts, to Medusa and Bubo the Owl from Clash of the Titans and everything in between. Some of these models require conservation, but the fact that they're with us in 2016 and we're able to to study them and display them, I think is is really fantastic. John, do you have any specific models that are your favourites? Uh, not so much from the films, but as as the models are now, you know, which, which models are your favourites from the collection? I think it's always hard to separate your favourite sequences from the film with the monsters or the creatures you most like to look at. And I think a favourite for me is, is Medusa because the sequence is so subtle um, in the film and yet so effective and scary. And, and, and when you meet the model up close, even though she's much smaller in scale, she still has that air of, of, um, of control and, and, and devilment. Um, so I think Medusa is one of my favourites. Bubo the Owl which um, preceded, uh, if you like, R2-D2 with its clicks and wheezes. That's a great fun one, and everyone loves Bubo. Um, but I think of recent creatures that I've seen from the collection, I love the centaur from The Golden Voyage of Sinbad with the spiky ginger hair and, uh, and the torso. It's quite an impressive piece, and it still looks in great shape now, even though the film is, is coming on to 40-plus years old. I think those are both uh, two very notable examples. I know that Medusa was one of Ray's favourite models. Just from a point of view of, of looking through the collection, not necessarily my favourite from the films, but when I encountered it for the first time, the Eohippus from the Valley of Guanji, uh, which is the little horse um, that's, that's central to the plot. When I first found that and, and took it out of its box, I just was it was breathtaking how detailed and, and delicate it was compared to a lot of the other models, which are obviously a lot more frightening. This this small horse really puts a shiver up your spine. Um, and another one is the, the Cyclops from the Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, which sadly uh, was cannibalised by Ray himself. He took the leg from that to use in, in Calabos in Clash of the Titans uh, more than 20 years later. But I think 
Well, well, I studied archaeology at university and finding the Cyclops minus his latex flesh and minus a leg, but still you can see the armature, you can see his head and the teeth. It was almost like doing you know, the archaeology of classic films. It was just really incredible to see it in the flesh and it still has this fantastic aura. There's a real spirit about it that you, you, know, you get the same feeling as you can imagine people watching this film for the first time, Dynamation in Colour, back in 1958. No, definitely. And talking of, of auras and things of the, of the netherworld, um, we're going to be joined by somebody else during these uh, recordings, and that's by Ray Harryhausen himself. So we've, we've gone through our audio archives, Connor, haven't we? And we found exclusive audio that hasn't been heard widely before, and in some cases never before, where Ray discusses his influences, the films, ideas behind them, his techniques, and, and ba- very basics as well. He introduces us to animation. And we have some of those clips, don't we? Yes, we do. When, when you hear a deep, distinctive American voice, it's not me or John. We have uh, clips from Ray that were recorded. And um, we've got a clip here just now to play. And this is Ray dis- discussing stop-motion animation, just to give you uh, an introduction to some of the ideas we'll be talking about. Well, model animation is basically the same principle as the animated cartoon, only instead of using flat drawings, you have a model such as this. In each frame of film, you have to change the position of the model. You have to move it very slightly. You have to move the eyes, the nose, the mouth, the arms, uh, many different parts of the body. So that was Ray Harryhausen just discussing some of the basics of stop-motion animations. I was talking about the Cyclops there and how it still survives, although it's been badly cannibalised in the years. There, there have been certain models which are sadly lost to us altogether. However, we, we have a way of uh, recreating them. Um, all of the original moulds for the latex in which the models were cast still exist. So in the case of the Ymir from 20 million miles to Earth, for example, um, Ray was able to create an exact replica of that model and it, it sits proudly within the collection today. And I think that's very exciting too. Anything that may have got lost over the years for one reason or another, um, we, we are able with Ray's notes and Ray's sketches and the moulds themselves, we are technically able to, to recreate all of these um, all of these fantastic creatures that, that may have been lost in the mists of time. That's right. You know, we can protect some of the ones we do have with 3D printing as well. So technology is really helping us to make sure that we protect and preserve the foundation and its legacy for future generations, which um, which clearly is the sort of mission statement for all collections of artwork. But I think this one is... It's so tangible and one that's more than just art on the wall, although we have some of that as well, that to try and make sure it's a full sort of 360-degree experience for those visiting in museums, I think is essential. And, you know, people say, well, why did Ray cannibalise his creatures? You know, why did he, if they're, they're so iconic? Well, you have to bring yourself back to when these films were made. It was very expensive creating the creatures. And as you move from one film to the next, time and money were often a pressure on each film. Had Ray not cannibalised certain creatures at certain times, other films might not have happened. And back in the day when films were considered quite disposable, in the way a box of cornflakes now doesn't get kept when you throw the cornflakes away, movies would literally be junked. They'd go back to laboratories when prints were made on celluloid and the they would either be melted down or chopped down very finely to make new films. So the idea that a film would be in cinemas again in 
one or two years' time was just not in the Hollywood business model. So the idea that you would keep the creatures from a film that's never going to be repeated in cinemas was a nonsense. So Hollywood has often thrown out really iconic pieces from different films over the years because it's always considered to be quite a temporary art form, even as a finished film themselves. Well, I know that Ray would never cannibalise one of his models. It wasn't a decision that he would make lightly. It was it was out of necessity. But I did think it was pretty incredible that the armature for the Emir ended up being used in the Cyclops from the seventh voyage of Sinbad and then again in Clash of the Titans. So it was really throughout his career he had this, this basis of ideas that were just delved into, reused. This this goes for his uh, his artwork and sketches as well. We have all of uh, Ray's storyboards, sketches, ideas for unmade films, and uh, th- these really just give you an insight into the creative process. Sometimes Ray's sketches or ideas for films wouldn't be wouldn't be created for years, like decades afterwards, if at all. And it's it's like he had this fundamental basis of of ideas that he could keep dipping into. Such a wealth of imagination. Yes, it is. You know, it's. Um he's influenced filmmakers across the board. So even if you're not an animator, Steven Spielberg's not an animator, but he's an enormous fan of Ray's work. Um, When Ray died in 2013, George Lucas was quoted as saying that there would likely have been no Star Wars without Ray Harryhausen. So, you know, he's more than just an animator. He's He's a genre in himself. You know, when people say, ah, it's like a Harryhausen, you know, in the same way that people use Disney as a as a as a shortcut for a genre, um, he has he entered that that um, that level of pop culture psyche, hasn't he? Absolutely, and that's uh, you know my my wife was watching Game of Thrones the other day. There was a scene with skeletons. The re- director was doing a bit of a commentary over the top, and he said, "Well, of course, these are Ray Harryhausen skeletons." So its legacy lives on. It's uh, possibly the only uh, special effects artist that whose name is on the front of a box set or on a series of films. And unlike most films or all films, you see the end title role, and it's the it's like the feeding of the five thousand. You can imagine what the catering must be just to feed all those people. Ray did it on his own, and by that we literally mean he did the sketches. He created the creatures, he put the little metal armatures inside, covered them in rubber, sometimes punched hair through them, painted them, created the miniature sets, put them on those sets, projected on the backgrounds a live-action sequence, then frame by frame animated those creatures to that sequence. He would be on his own through that entire process, literally. Um, And he couldn't um, even have an assistant with him. I said, well, surely somebody could come in and make you coffee and do that. He said, oh... Um, no, John, I couldn't because any extra interaction with somebody else would, would almost be an extra plate to spin. I'm much more focused completely on my own. Having said that, he wasn't a diva by any sense, but it's quite incredible to think these sequences came literally from one man's involvement. Well, yeah, I think by way of comparison, uh, the, the movie Lord of the Rings Return of the King has a credit sequence which lasts for nine and a half minutes, and it's just hundreds and hundreds of names. At the end of one of Ray's films, his one name <laughs> pops up at the end. Um, uh, there was a quote I loved from Ray where he said uh, he didn't collaborate very often because he didn't want people to talk him out of things. And it's that focus, I think, which is incredible. We'll probably never see someone like that again working in films. No, and plus also there was the smoke and mirrors element of it. Magicians now don't like to even reveal their tricks. And when Ray used to speak to film magazines and publications, he was quite guarded about the techniques, about how things were done, because actually they were, they were trade secrets, like um, 
you know, when people talk about the secret recipe in chicken and in cola drinks, it really was a secret back then. And Hollywood didn't like to reveal those secrets because if you're telling somebody the monster is 50 feet high or 10 stories high, you don't want that illusion smashed by publicity still showing a 12-inch rubber model on a, on a miniature set. So Ray would obviously guard preciously the secrets that he created and the, the dynamation process as it's become known. Um, we've got another clip, haven't we, of, of Ray discussing his uh, his armatures as well. We have to do a great deal of research with uh, prehistoric animals because most children have studied them in school. And we uh, have to refer to books that are written by prominent scientists. Charles R. Knight, for example, I use a great deal. And here's an example of some uh, prehistoric restorations. And then we start actually from the skeleton, the basic skeleton to plan the armature for the uh, rubber models. This type of armature has to be inside the rubber model to enable it to uh, function. So to give a bit of background on the sounds that we're hearing, I recorded commentaries recently with Ray. In the last couple of years, um, he was with us from sort of 2012 um, and through to 2013 when he sadly passed. We found that he hadn't recorded commentaries for any of his films or only one or two of them, which was quite incredible when you think about it. So we sat down and recorded pretty much all of his films bar... The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms, which was the last one we were trying to record, but sadly he passed away. Um, so in the films, we had special guests join us, including Caroline Monroe, who's a actress in one of Ray's films, a former Bond girl, and now a trustee of the foundation. And John Landis, the Hollywood film director, joined us for one as well. So you're going to be hearing clips throughout these podcasts from those recordings we've made, and some of them will be made available in future in their entirety as well so we have plans for those and centenary plans which connor will discuss with us as well but um you've had fun connor have you looking through some of the audio clips oh it's, it's incredible just listening to them all again um such a treasure trove to hear ray discussing his films while he's watching them uh, with the perspective of time and with all these special guests i mean you you must have picked up so many little anecdotes and stories and facts that, that no one else has ever heard before and we're lucky enough to have access to them and to be able to, to select clips for, for our podcast. Yes, exactly. You know, I thought so I'm a bit of a Harryhausen geek, so I'm a bit of a fanboy. So I think I know, you know, how long it took to do the skeletons in Jason and all, all the other sort of facts and feats. But Ray would say, you know, why should I do these recordings? Is it a waste of time? My memory's not as good as it was. I'm not sure I'll remember. Of course, the minute we put the films on and the music starts and he's in the moments, he was telling us stuff that we hadn't heard before and he was remembering anecdotes and, and technical stories that, um, that he hadn't revealed before and it was just almost the therapy of watching the films and sitting down perhaps with somebody who'd worked on the film with him that unlocked the uh, the past for him, which was fabulous. And in the case of having technical people involved with the film that had worked with him, whether actors or other cameramen, they gave their perspective, and Ray was fascinated to hear it from perhaps a performer's perspective, what it was like working on one of his films. Um, and I think we have a clip of Ray discussing the iconic Medusa, don't we, from Clash of the Titans? Well, I remembered an old film I saw when I was very young uh, that Todd Browning made called Freaks, and uh, uh, they had some people without uh, legs who could drag themselves along, and that went through my mind when I made the entrance. So uh, I kept the snake quality in her by having to pull herself 
along with uh, her arms. But she also crawled like a snake. Oh, the rattle. I, I wanted to give it a rattlesnakes uh, so that the sound department could uh, make her presence known by just a rattle. And uh, you have to think of those things. And I, uh, I actually, the Medusa in the original story never had a bow and arrow. I took that from Diana, the legend of Diana. And of course, Diana was the name of Ray's wife as well, coincidentally, which um, which is just a coincidence, I'm sure. I'm sure, yeah. Um, so that that brings us on to the fact that it's the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. That's uh, that's who we're working with today. And this is a this is a foundation that Ray himself set up during the 1980s. Why why was it that Ray decided to set up a foundation for for his collection and his archive for future generations? Well, it was pretty much what you said. It was to protect and preserve the collection for future generations and to keep everything together. You know, there's an element of conservation and restoration, of course, and we we face those issues day to day, but also to let future generations know what stop-motion photography was, you know, why it was important, why effectively it was essential in what's called the photochemical world. You know, when, when photography was done against a, a strip of plastic that had light-sensitive chemicals on it, it's different now, we're in a digital age, but Ray could never have predicted in the mid-80s that stop-motion animation and photochemical photography is on the way back. You know, Kodak is making more films now in the last three or four years with filmmakers like Quentin Tarantino than they had um, in the last, say, ten years when things started to go down the tubes for them because of the digital generation, um, the digital sort of revolution. But uh, stop-motion animation is back as well. We see lots of examples of it now with Tim Burson's film Frank and Weenie, Box Trolls, the marvellous Ardman animation work. So stop-motion photography is at a much higher market's peak now than it was in the mid-'80s when uh, Ray had sort of retired officially from, from making his own film. So I think he was he was quite sort of forward-thinking that there should be a foundation to protect his work and legacy but not as a vanity project. This is for future generations. One of Ray's wishes is that we create a, a, a animation scholarship, one here in the UK and one in the US. We have lots of other interesting foundation plans. These podcasts, for example, are being made free of charge to anybody who's interested in hearing them, and we're making, obviously, the commentaries available free of charge too because we don't want to exploit the fans. We want to embrace them and bring them into what is really a, a quite unique place in film history. I think you're right, and I think the resurgence and in interest in stop-motion animation, it could be broadly analysed against the ongoing popularity of vinyl records versus streaming music. I think a lot of people feel like we threw the baby out with the bathwater with the CGI revolution, although a lot of it was excellent. It's the same with streaming music. There's a difference between listening to music rather than just hearing it. And there's a, there's a difference between watching special effects rather than having them wash over you. And it seems like these days filmmakers are really making an effort to bring real effects back into movies, such as in the most recent Star Wars films, which had a lot of physical sets and effects, which you know was obviously massively popular and well-received with the cinema-going public. Absolutely, and, and I don't know if, if eagle-eyed fans noticed, the chessboard sequence in The Force Awakens was back when the, the chessboard in the Millennium Falcon gets accidentally nudged. All the little creatures come alive on board. Those original creatures from the original Star Wars film, A New Hope, were inspired directly by the Cyclops and the other creatures from the, the Harryhausen family of monsters. So 
you know, Ray's legacy is always there and it's always with us. But so as we come to the end of this sort of first, our premiere episode, Connor, if you'd like to, to let all of our listeners know what, what's happening next and how they can get in touch. Well, we will be releasing these podcasts on a, on a monthly basis. And really, we, we have lots of ideas, as you've heard. Me and John have got a hundred things we could talk about, but we thought this would be an excellent opportunity to engage with the fan base. And really, we want you to let us know what you'd like to hear us talk about. Is there an aspect of Ray's career that you would like to hear discussed in more detail? One of his films in particular, or one of his creatures? An aspect of somebody that influenced Ray, or somebody that he worked with? Really, just any any aspect of Ray's entire career and life, we're, we're happy to talk about in more detail. We, we're able to work in this huge archive that Ray left behind. Give me a challenge, give us some research to do. I, I would love to, uh, to hear what the fan base would like, to, would like us to delve into. We'll be recording these podcasts on a monthly basis, as I said, and whoever's topic is selected for discussion will win a prize. We have a, a copy of Ray's book, A Life in Pictures, which is a quite autobiographical picture book. And whoever selects the best topic of conversation will win that. If you, you could just um, go to our Facebook and Twitter pages, um, we will select the, our favourite topic. Excellent. So we'll, uh, we'll see you all again next month. Thank you. Copyright in the Ray Harryhausen podcast is owned by the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, a registered Scottish charity, number SC001419, 2016. This recording may not be reproduced in whole or in parts without written permission from the Foundation. The views expressed within these podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of the Foundation, its trustees or employees. For further terms and conditions, please contact us at rayharryhausen.com where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links.